Okay, today is March 10th, 2008. This is Fidencio Marbella of the Melrose Park Public Library. Also present is Heidi Beasley of the Melrose Park Public Library. Today we, we will be speaking with Reverend George Knapp. Reverend Knapp is a current resident of LaGrange Park, Illinois. He served in the United States Army from 1943 through 1945, and the highest rank he achieved was as a captain. Uh, this interview is being conducted for the Veterans History Project at the Library of Congress. Okay, let's go ahead and get started. Why don't you tell me, uh, Reverend Knapp, uh, when and where you were born? Well, I was born in New Lenox, Illinois, which is about 40 miles uh, south of here. And uh, I uh, was uh, the first child of uh, my father, whose name was also George, and uh, a wife, Catherine. Okay. And do you have any siblings? Yeah, my brother, uh, uh, Marvin, was two and a half years younger, but he passed away at the age of, of 80, so he's been gone quite some time. And uh, what did your parents do for a living? My father, when I was born, he was working for the uh, EJ&E Railroad, but he uh, had been born and raised on a farm, and he enjoyed farming, so uh, he became a, a renter. He rented a farm uh, a few miles from New Lenox in, in Manhattan, Illinois, and, of course, that is southeast of Joliet. So he farmed his, his entire life in that general area. He was always a renter. Never owned a farm, but he rented uh, uh, two or three different farms before he retired. And then my parents moved to the little town in Manhattan. Okay. So you were born uh, July 14th, 1916. And so before you entered the service, uh, the, the world was already at war. Did you and your friends and family have any sense that the U.S. was going to be drawn into the war as well? Uh, my brother was in the service uh, before I was. He was younger, but of course, uh, as a clergyman, I was exempt from the draft. So you were already uh, in the clergy before. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, uh, I went out of I went out of from college. I went to uh, the seminary. I went to Joliet Junior College, two years, and I went to Elmhurst College for one year only because of the fact I had so many credits. They said, you don't have to be here for two whole years. So anyhow, uh, I graduated from the college and went to Eden Theological Seminary. And the, the, the college and the seminary are both uh, institutions of the United Church of Christ. And I am a member of that uh, denomination, United Church of Christ. So in uh, where were you when you heard about Pearl Harbor? I tell you what, that was really something. We were serving a church in uh, South Illinois, in uh, uh, Lensburg, and uh, we had uh, one son, and we, on that particular Sunday, after I had services in the morning, we went to see Virginia's parents uh, back in the St. Louis area. And we really hadn't heard anything on the car radio which wasn't working too good in that old car we had. But when we got back and went to the church that evening for a youth fellowship meeting, the young people were telling us what had happened at Pearl Harbor. And that's how we learned about Pearl Harbor. Was that, uh, and while we were gone, you know, uh, in St. Louis, uh, in a suburb of St. Louis to visit my 
my uh, my wife's parents that day. Why this all happened? We came back. Why the young people were just—that's all they could think about, you know. And then that's how we learned that Pearl Harbor had occurred. What was your reaction like when you first heard the news? Well, I just—it was just very, very difficult to to believe. I mean, I think the the whole United States was shocked at what had uh, taken place. So you ended up joining the uh, the army in 1943. Uh, did you enlist, or were you drafted? At that yeah, point? like I said, chaplains are exempt from the draft. But uh, and we had one son. And when uh, they started drafting young fathers from my congregation, uh, some of them had uh, one child, one child, two children, or more. I just uh, felt that uh, it was my duty then to uh, volunteer as a chaplain. Of course, uh, a clergyman had to volunteer, whether you were a, a Catholic priest, a, a Jewish rabbi, or a Protestant minister. Why, uh, you all were exempt from the draft. So in order to become a chaplain, why, uh, I had to volunteer, and so I did. And why did you pick the Army over uh, the other services? Well, I just... Uh, in fact, <laughs> I picked the army because at that time, the uh, there was no uh, air force. The the there was an air corps. The air corps was a part of the army, and I figured, well, I had my fingers crossed. You know, I always liked airplanes, and I figured, well, if I became an army chaplain, there was a chance I would be assigned to the air corps. And of course, we didn't live too far from uh, Scottfield Air Force Base. Uh, at that particular time, so that is where I uh, went to uh, to sign up, so to speak, and uh, get my uniform and so on, so that, uh, in plain words, symbolically, I had my fingers crossed, hoping I would get assigned to the uh, the Air Corps part of the United States Army at that time. Well, yeah, and. Uh, of course, like at Scott Field Air Force Base, why that was a, the closest uh, army base around, which was a part of the army at that time, like I said. So I went to Scott Air Force Base and and uh, enlisted and and uh, and did my uh, uh, preliminary paperwork, and also uh, bought my uh, first uniform in that, which I'm still wearing. And but the thing is, we only got two hundred dollars as an allotment for everything that we needed. You know, that included clothing and, uh, and uh, like um, military uh, chaplain supplies, like I brought here my, my uh, field altar, so that uh, in order to get as much as I could for that $200, why then I bought everything used. So I bought used shoes, my first uh, 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 army boots were used, and. Uh, and my, this uniform was used when I bought it. It still fits. It's, it's very well made, you know. So after all these years, why, uh, even though it was used when I bought it, why, it's still in pretty good shape. Of course, when we were in combat, naturally, why, this uniform was still back in England. And eventually, why, uh, uh, when uh, the fighting got uh, uh, just about ended, why, then they sent our, our, uh, our footlockers from England over to us wherever we were in, in France or Germany. 
so then I got my uniform and but uh, of course uh, in combat naturally we were dressed like all the other soldiers in combat fatigues and boots and everything else so uh, the only thing that distinguished me for uh, was of course my my uh, my my chaplain's cross and at first I had my first lieutenant bars on then I became a, a captain I was promoted uh, uh, while we were in combat and so then uh, but I did uh, with the uh, the uh, army fatigues uh, fighting a uniform so to speak why uh, the only way they could tell me from other officers was of course that I had the cross on and uh, instead of the uh, the uh, the cross uh, rifles which the infantry so officers had and then I always wore uh, uh, a black chaplain sword which of course I have with me in my communion set here so when I had services I uh, I had my uh, my black chaplain soul on over my army fatigues. Okay, what was the reaction of your family, and in particular your wife, when you decided to enlist in the army? What was that? What was uh, the reaction like of your family and your wife when you well, decided to enlist? I think they were sort of all shocked, although, see, my younger brother was already in, so I suppose my father, my parents just sort of uh, took it for granted that it was a natural thing for me to do but my father-in-law had been uh, in World War one so uh, we had quite a, a military uh, background on my my wife's side and uh, but my brother was already in he was a sergeant and so then uh, I guess it just became natural that uh, they expected that uh, you know the armed forces needed chaplains, so uh, somebody had to do it. Now, after you enlisted, uh, where did you go for your training? Uh, Harvard University was at at that particular time. Uh, the chaplain school was at Harvard University, so I, I can always say I'm a Harvard man. But of course, uh, there were were about uh, three or four hundred of us uh, who were. Uh, uh, at the chaplain school at that particular time in training because uh, you know in uh, in 1943 why things were really getting going and there were a lot of class classmates there and some I bumped into when I got overseas some I've never seen again but uh, it was quite interesting to have the chaplain school at Harvard University at that particular time and so uh, uh, it was a on uh, the first day before my uh, birthday, I took the train from St. Louis and headed for uh, Harvard University. So I missed my son's, uh, what, what was that, his, uh, his first birthday. I missed my, my son's first birthday. Now, what was the training like at Harvard? I'd imagine it was quite a bit different from a combat soldier. Well, um, really? we, we did a lot of, uh, naturally, a lot of, a lot of book work, but uh, we had uh, in the wooded area behind the the uh, the university uh, uh, dormitories area. That's where we would uh, have our combat boots on and uh, and do a lot of uh, marching, training, maneuvering, so that we were able to uh, fit in with the rest of the fellows. Yeah, and we had a great big open field there. You know, on the on the uh, athletic field, that's where we did a lot of our uh, uh, drill work. 
And uh, <laughs> I'll never forget this one. One tall fellow, he was a, a redheaded uh, uh, clergyman, much taller than I was. But he was at the at the beginning of the column as we were moving along, and the, the drill sergeant gave the command uh, to the rear march, and he didn't hear it or he didn't know what it meant, so he just kept on going. And then after a while, by the drill sergeant, uh, young fellow, you know, he he said talk to all of us, he said halt. And then he called this fellow back, and he, he just was way, way afar away from us. That's something like that you never forget. But we had a lot of drilling and uh, training in uh, whatever would be necessary to, to ready us for being out in, uh, in the combat area. So what were the facilities like that you were in? Were they um, pretty primitive, or did you say in barracks? Or uh, We were... Um, I think there were four fellows in this uh, in this dormitory oh, room okay. with me. We just lived in the dormitory of the of the Harvard University, and had our classes in the in the big uh, classrooms. And then, of course, the uh, outside maneuvers were out on the on the uh, uh, athletic field. Okay. What were some of the classes that you you had to take? No, you really got me there oh. because uh, uh, we were. Uh, given all kinds of uh, uh, military information, but for the life of me, I don't remember the specific classes or books or what the names of the courses. Oh, yeah, yeah. We had to learn how to, how to read the military maps, of course, yeah. How to navigate. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Now, how long were you at Harvard? I think just about five weeks. Okay. Yeah. So once that training was over, uh, where did they send you? Well, I was able to, uh, Virginia will have to remind me some of these things, but uh, then uh, from, from Harvard, oh yeah, I know, now I'm thinking about it, from Harvard University, uh, when we were, the classes were all over with after five weeks, why the telegram, cablegram came from the Adjutant General's Department in Washington, D.C., and uh, told us where each one of us was going. So I went down the alphabetical list, you know, and let's uh, listen noticing where these other fellows of my classmates were going and George W. Knapp, 4th Infantry Division, Fort Dix, New Jersey. So I had to get a train ticket and, and go to Fort Dix, New Jersey. And uh, and when I got there, why, I was assigned, like I said before, to the uh, 12th Infantry Regiment of the 4th Division. And of course, a, a division is about 15,000 men and uh, there were three regiments and so there were three chaplains with each regiment. And when I went to our to the headquarters, which was the, the chapel of our 12th Infantry Regiment there at Fort Dix, why uh, the, the other two chaplains uh, welcomed me. He said, well, welcome aboard, chaplain. Uh, we've been a hot out. We are a hot outfit. We've been packed up twice already to go to Africa. But then they recalled the orders and we're still here. But he said, we are a hot, a hot outfit. And so welcome aboard. And so one was a, a regimental chaplain who had been there for quite some time in the military for, for a number of years. He was the Catholic chaplain, and then, then there were two Protestant chaplains. The other Protestant was a Lutheran, and he hadn't been there too long before I got there. But like they said, welcome aboard. And so I, as soon as I could, I got to the telephone, and of course uh, I called uh, Virginia back in a suburb of St. Louis, uh, and uh, I told her what the situation was. Luckily, my brother had had a new car 
before he went into the service, and and he could not have a car with him as a sergeant, you know, on the base where he was. And so we were using his uh, almost brand new car. And so Virginia and the and the one year old son uh, got in the car, and her elderly aunt came along to sort of give her, uh, uh, I guess, some comfort on the way. And the one thing that was interesting, you know, uh, you couldn't buy maps those days because nobody was, uh, they didn't want maps to get into the hands of the wrong people. So you didn't have a map, did you? And so she just had to uh, sort of follow the road signs and with a, uh, a regular, uh, I don't know if she had a, a geography book with you or I mean a, anything with you, but she just had to follow the road signs. Yeah. So she got out there, and then, uh, of course, uh, we were at Fort Dix for uh, a while, and at that time, we rented uh, a house in a, in a nearby town, uh, not a house, but I mean a, a room on the second floor for, for uh, where I could stay with them at night. So I, uh, sometimes she would drive me out. If she needed the car during the day, sometimes I would drive out and, and do my work at the chapel. A lot of times we would be out on field maneuvers, or we'd be uh, working at the chapel for our, our the upcoming services, making hospital calls on the fellows that were sick or in the uh, in the hospital there at Fort Dix, and so we were there for uh, uh, a couple of months, wasn't it, Jenya? Yeah, the last thing we got there is last part of October, and then we didn't ship out until May January. Yeah, so. Uh, uh, she and the and the one-year-old son, of course, they uh, they stayed in this uh, little town not too far from Fort Dix, and I would spend the night with them because uh, no use to stay out at the at the base where I had my my quarters, of course. Okay. So this would have been in late 1943, early 1944. Maybe? Yeah, that was in uh, in late 1943. Yeah, because of the fact that, like I said, I went in and only five weeks at chaplain school, so it was. Uh, in the uh, the latter parts of the month and then uh, of, of that year, and then uh, uh, Fort Dix was uh, transferred down to uh, uh, what was the name of that camp? What Butner? No, 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 no. Anyhow, it was Pensacola, yeah, down to uh, the state of Florida, and we stayed there. Of course, then uh, we all drove down there together. And we didn't know the East Coast at all, you know, driving from New Jersey down to Florida. But the other Protestant chaplain was from Virginia, and he knew that area quite well. So we followed him, uh, and uh, he was leading us the way. He had uh, uh, two boys and his wife in his car and the three of us in our car. So we all had to be sure we kept him in sight so that we could uh, get uh, uh, in following him and getting to the right place at the right time. So how long did that take? It took a long time, yeah. And we would have to stay at, uh, you know, at a motel or two on the way down because it took quite quite a while to get from New Jersey down to Florida. And uh, I know that, uh, of course, this is sort of a silly thing to see, but to do. But I, I had a, uh, to urinate one time, you know, so badly. But I, because I'd been drinking coffee and things like that, I didn't dare leave him because I had to follow him. Finally, we, we all stopped at the gas station. He had to stop at the gas station, and so then the, everything went all right from then on. But um, when we got down to Florida, 
by we were at uh, uh, a camp there in Florida uh, doing amphibious training. The camp was right near uh, the ocean, and, and uh, so we uh, we did our amphibious training. And of course, uh, I was not a swimmer, but I had to. We had to prove that we could swim to be able to qualify to go overseas. And Virginia always says, why did you work so hard to prove that you could swim? <laughs> so anyhow, uh, and the water was pretty chilly there, even though it was, well, it was uh, getting towards uh, the, the end of fall and the beginning of uh, the, the winter time. The water was pretty chilly, but uh, we did, uh, I, I just want, didn't want to admit that I was not a swimmer. But I, I swam enough that I f qualified as an, a chaplain who would be involved in the invasion. And so then uh, we were given a, a little free time. It was at November, wasn't it? At Thanksgiving? Yeah. Uh, between November and, I mean, somewhere between uh, the Thanksgiving time, we had a couple of weeks of, uh, of leave after our training was through there. So we drove back up from Jack's, from Florida up to... Uh, the general Chicago area, first stopping at St. Louis to see uh, Virginia's parents and family and uh, friends, and then kind of came up to the Chicago area where I had uh, most of my, I lived in the south of Chicago here, uh, southeast of Joliet, and so then we uh, visited here and then uh, drove out to uh, uh, the, the, the east coast where we were going to be uh, from, where we were going to be uh, shipping overseas from uh, from New York, the port of New York in uh, in January of uh, that was in uh, in '44, wasn't it? Yeah, 1944. And so uh, we had a a little bit of a time there together. And like uh, I have written some of my things down, but uh, I was just it was just uh, as after we were through with our our training there. For a short time, within, uh, uh, we were going to be taking off and going to uh, uh, another port to catch the, the ship to go overseas. And uh, I'll never forget how I felt when I, I can still see in my mind's eye uh, as, uh, as I was preparing to get on the, the train to go to the ship. I, uh, I looked back and there, Virginia and the, the one-year-old son were walking away. And as I remember, they never looked back. <laughs> they didn't dare look back, but I watched them until they were out of sight, and then, then we got on the train and and went to the the port of departure and shipped overseas there in in January. Okay. So, what was your trip overseas like? In, going on the Atlantic and that was, a, that was was the trip was very off. good. Yeah, it it wasn't uh, abnormally rough or anything, and there was a ship chaplain. Of course, naturally, the ship had its own chaplain. And uh, uh, but we and and the chaplain uh, conducted services uh, on the ship uh, for our men on the way over. And of course, the Catholic chaplain would have his services, and we two Protestant chaplains would work together or or individually at having the services for the Protestant men on the ship. And I think, if I remember right, we had a we had a service, uh, uh, some kind of a worship service every day. Maybe sometimes just a devotional service or. A prayer time and and of course if it was a uh, once or twice a week especially on the Sunday on the way over then we'd have a regular uh, formal worship service 
And if there were men in the hospital, on the, in the ship's hospital, because of seasickness or illness, whatever it was, then we would visit them. So we were kept very busy, you know. You're always busy as a chaplain or a minister in a church if, because there's always something going on that you, you can do be doing. Now how long a trip was this? How long did it take to get to Europe? I think about 10 days. Ten days. Yeah. Had you ever been on a big ship like that before? No, no. Uh, had we? No, we, we we had never been on a ship. We always were uh, traveling by automobile on our honeymoon and and so on. So uh, this was uh, quite an experience. But uh, everything seemed to work all right. And the food was good. They called me the Chowhound Chaplain, which I still am, I guess, because uh, I, uh, I'm quite an eater. But, uh, but uh, we had a good trip, and we... We landed uh, in England, and uh, we were quartered uh, or stationed at uh, 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 Budney Salterton, which was in, in South Devon, not too far from the English Channel, because then we were able to uh, have our training exercises, our amphibious exercises uh, uh, on, the, uh, on the English Channel, not too terribly far from where, the, where, the, where our camp was. And what was the amphibious training like? Well, uh, we were, uh, uh, we got in our amphibious landing craft, you know, the, the kind of boats that were going to be actually taking us over to the, uh, to the, the shores of uh, France for the invasion. So we actually uh, got uh, trained in uh, what we were going to have to be doing when the actual invasion took place. Um, now, did, when you were in England, did you have much contact with the British people? Oh, yes, yes. And I've been reading some of the notes that I took. And, uh, of course, uh, there's a, there was a nice uh, church, a Protestant church, in this uh, town of Butley Salterton. And uh, we were able to, to use the church for our, for our services. And we would uh, have... Uh, after at such time when the civilians would not be using the church, or then we had our our Sunday worship services, and we could use it for Bible study and and uh, other uh, religious activities. Okay. Now, did you have much of a chance to see other parts of England? No, not that, not too much, because we were uh, we could not get to London. We were about seventy miles from London, but we had orders not to go, even as a chaplain. Uh, and I was only a lieutenant then, you know, but uh, even as an officer, I was not allowed. And I had my own Jeep, too. At each Every chaplain had a, a Jeep and trailer. And uh, so that, uh, but uh, in, in fact, I, I must go back a little bit and correct that statement. We did not have our own Jeep uh, while well, we were in England, but we could always order a, a Jeep and driver from the motor pool. But as I said, we were not permitted to go to London. Yeah, we just had to stay in Budley, Salterton, and in that uh, nearby area. And we did go to, uh, part of our outfit was uh, in Exmouth, a few miles from Budley, Salterton. So uh, uh, because of the fact that uh, with, with two Protestant chaplains and three regiments, why we would have to take turns going from the, the regiment to, with, to which we were assigned to the other ch regiment where the Catholic chaplain was, and he would have to 
by jeep, so to speak, go to all the, the other three regiments, I mean battalions of the regiment, and have his Catholic services. And, and uh, the other chap, Protestant chap and myself would take turns going to uh, what we call the third, the, the second battalion. The other Protestant chaplain was the first battalion, I was with the third. So we would go to this second battalion and have the services there. And every once in a while, of course, we would have the celebration of the Lord's Supper, Holy Communion. And that's why I, <coughs> excuse me, I uh, have lots of memories of uh, using my communion set uh, out in the field and in, uh, in civilian churches and so on. But, of course, as you know, the rules and regulations were over there the same as here, that we, at least we Protestant chaplains could not use a Catholic church, and the Catholic chaplain could not use our, uh, the Protestant churches. So if there was no church of our, denom of our particular religious affiliation in that town, then you know, we had to have our services uh, just out in the field or uh, you know, along the beach. I remember a Palm Sunday service. We were, we were on the beach, and it was chilly, and it, and it started raining, but that didn't prevent us from continuing the service. Now, what was the mood like of the soldiers before the invasion? Well, we uh, uh, were a little bit uh, quite concerned, you know. When I remember General Eisenhower came over uh, and, uh, to speak to our group, and they were on maneuvers out in the field. And, and I never did get to see him at that particular time because he did not get to see every, every unit of the 12th Infantry Regiment at that time. So I did not see him at that time. But, uh, of course, the soldiers were, a lot of them, you know, they had volunteered, like I did. I, I presume most of them had been drafted, but uh, they just knew that this was something that our country was involved in, and it was something that we were, that we had to do, and we just followed orders. But uh, I know that Virginia and I talked about it, that we read about the fact that, as I had said in, in one of my notations or, or letters to her, that uh, we were on... Uh, maneuvers there in England, and uh, uh, it was a little bit, uh, 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 we were a little bit downhearted, you know, to realize that we were going to be, when we found out we were going to be part of the invasion. And uh, I, I think of one instance there where we, after we were in the invasion, why uh, we had been fighting uh, very intensively and I heard two of our young company commanders talking about the fact they had just gotten orders to move on farther and go farther into France in Normandy uh, and uh, keep on the, uh, the fighting. And they were, they were so uh, heart sick in a way that their men were so exhausted by not having hard any sleep and not much time to, to, to rest or, I mean, to eat even. And then they, they were just, those, those two young officers were very downtrodden. And uh, and when I got when I was started listening to them and heard their stories and how uh, uh, downtrodden they were, why well, I, I did uh, uh, get very depressed myself, and uh, I uh, I went uh, across the field and and uh, sort of laid down alongside of a, uh, a a fence there in the in the French area and uh, had a good cry. I really did. I was just very, very downtrodden and sort of brokenhearted about what I had just heard them telling about. But then I said to myself, here, listen, you, you volunteered for this job. 
uh, you got to get up and do your do your job. So I, I did have a good cry over the whole thing, though. And finally, I said, well, now I volunteered for this job and I got to be a good chaplain. So I sort of, in plain words, dried my eyes and got up and uh, continued on. And I don't think I ever felt quite that bad after that. But uh, I sort of got it out of my system and uh, and uh, tried to serve uh, these two young officers and all the other officers and men as the best way as I could. But we were in constant combat as a 4th Infantry Division for 11 straight months. And that meant we were in we were in contact with the at least there was a period of 199 days where we were in constant contact with with the enemy, and it was it was a uh, it was it was pretty rugged, you know, for our men. And we had we had the highest rate of casualties of any outfit that fought in Europe. So uh, the Fourth Infantry Division, uh, of course, it was in it was in World War One. We had all this time in World War Two, and they've uh, they've served in Vietnam. Uh, two or three times already. They go over for a year of duty, come back, and, for, and rebuild their forces and their strength and their morale, so to speak, and then go back again. So uh, I think a part of the 4th Division is, is in uh, Iraq right now. But like I said, we had a uh, 400% casualty rate, and people say that's impossible. You were wiped out four times. But of course, as our men were killed and wounded, why the replacements kept coming across the channel from England where they were being trained to do that very thing, you know. And so our ranks were always being filled up as our men were killed and wounded and sent to the hospital. Uh, why then uh, our ranks were filled up. But we did have a 400% casualty rate. You know, the highest casualty rate of any unit that fought in World War II in the European theater. Don't you really wonder? I always wonder how he ever well, the odds are so much but, against you. But I was, but I was wounded. You know, as that's why I wear the, the uh, the purple heart. But uh, uh, anyhow, uh, uh, we we did lose one chaplain. There was fifteen chaplains to every regiment, uh, enough to serve the very the you know three chaplains with each battalion. There were three battalions, and then we had the uh, artillery unit and the tank tank battalion in that part of the regiment. So each unit had their own chaplain. And so uh, uh, the uh, we, as I say, we only lost one chaplain that I remember in in uh, with uh, with an enemy uh, fire, and he was in the in the regimental uh, command post at that particular time, and they uh, the enemy started, and that was in Normandy, France, and one of the uh, 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 machine gun bullets came across the area and into the, uh, the uh, headquarters tent where he was and hit him right in the heart. So that was, I don't remember of any other of our 15 chaplains who were uh, actually killed, but some of course became, uh, you know, in, in plain words, they became, a, had combat exhaustion or they were physically ill and they would have to go back and replace into another outfit that wasn't always in combat or maybe be sent back to a hospital in the United States or in England. And so uh, I never did have to go to a hospital. My wounds were such that they were taken care of at the company aid station. But like I said, we did use, use that one chaplain uh, from enemy fire. And it was at one time that uh, uh, we were always up there with the men that there 
when they were actually doing the fighting, you know. So as soon as they were wounded, we could take care of them. But uh, our uh, division commander got word of that. He only had, uh, you know, there were 15 chaplains uh, in the entire division. And so he realized that if he lost any of his chaplains, that who knows how long they would it would take before they'd be replaced. So he gave the command out that we were supposed to say, uh, come back from the actual uh, fighting combat area and uh, and be at the regimental aid station and where, where the wounded men were coming. They were all being brought by litter bearers, and that's where we could take care of them. And he didn't want to lose <laughs> all of his chaplains right away. And so, uh, as I said, I there's only one that got killed. And, but uh, we were then at the... Uh, at the regimental aid station where the wounded were brought and many of them were died there after they got to the aid station and so we would be taking care of them and as they were breathing their last and uh, and sometimes it doesn't seem like it was very significant but uh, of course I was not a smoker I still am not but a lot of these fellows uh, their hands were wounded or they were unable to uh, to light a cigarette so we would take a pack of cigarettes light it for them, put it in their mouth, let them take a few drags, and and then uh, take it out for a while, and then shake the ashes off, and, and it gave them some comfort. And sometimes the only, and the other thing we did was to give them a drink of water, because that's all we had. There was nothing up there at the front, you know, but give them a drink of water, uh, let them uh, have a few drags on a cigarette. So whatever, in whichever way in which we could do, we would visit with them, uh, talk with them, if they were able to talk and uh, and share our experiences with them and and a lot of times they'd like to talk about their family back home and and uh, some of course that a lot of times why we as we gave them the last rice because this was uh, the end of their life and they were always able to have I have a little private communion set in here if they if I knew them personally and and they felt that they'd like to have uh, private communion right at that time before they were taken back from there to the uh, to the field hospital and then eventually to a hospital in England or back to the United States. Eventually, why a lot of them did feel like they'd have like to have the Lord's Supper, the Holy Communion. And if they were Catholic and our Catholic chaplain wasn't around, why uh, you know we uh, we served them to the best way that we could as Protestant chaplains. Now, what was the actual invasion like? You you went ashore on what day? Were you there on June sixth? Yeah. Right. Well, uh, we were uh, on this great big passenger ship. I mean, a, a troop ship, of course. You know, and it was really really packed. And of course, the men were uh, in not too good of spirits. They were down tr in their spirits were rather low because they knew what was going to be happening. But the ship was overloaded in a way. Uh, not dangerously, but I mean, it was, uh, you, you could just sleep anywhere you could lie down. and, and uh, But the food was always good. And of course, as I said before, I'm a chow hound. But anyhow, uh, we were on the, uh, on the English Channel for uh, a, a day or two longer than they expected. Because as you know, the, the weather was terrible. And Eisenhower and his uh, uh, weathermen and his, his fellow officers had to, keep on deciding, well, can we go or can't we go at all? If they had waited another whole month until the moon was just 
and everything else was right, right then, uh, by that time, who knows what the enemy would have found out what was going to be going on. As far as we were concerned at that particular time, the Nazis were not aware of uh, the fact that we had, that the invasion was being planned so soon. So uh, we were on this ship uh, a day or two longer than we were supposed to be. And I don't think, I think we just about ran out of food. But uh, a lot of the fellows really did get very seasick, you know. I was lucky. I got a little bit woozy at times, but I never got really seasick. And so when the time came for the invasion, when the invasion was really uh, called for by Eisenhower and his uh, fellow officers at June the 6th, you know, why we, the ship got as close as we were able to, to the shore. And then we went down the side of the ship on these rope ladders. And Virginia always wonders how I made it. Uh, I had to carry my, uh, my, uh, my uh, equipment here, you know, and uh, mess kit and, and other things like that. But we had to go down the side of the ship on the uh, uh, rope ladders and get down into the uh, the landing craft, which were bouncing around down there because it was a little bit rough. And so as soon as we got uh, in the landing craft and it was filled with about 24 men, by then uh, we, we headed for the shore. And we were very, very lucky. There's no doubt about that, that uh, our a lot of, the, as you know from history, a lot of those landing craft hit uh, 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 some uh, impediment out there before they got to the, uh, to the shore. Sometimes the ship, the, the landing craft got stuck out there. The men had to just jump out into the deep water way over their heads with their, their rifles and their, their backpacks and everything, go under, <laughs> completely sink underwater, come up and had to swim as best they could. Some of them never made it, of course. But now our particular landing craft, we were very fortunate. Uh, we land, went right up to the beach, and when the ramp went down, I walked out onto dried land. I mean, it was, well, wet sand, but I mean, there, it was uh, on the sand. It was not, we didn't get out into the water. And uh, uh, so then, of course, we had to uh, uh, follow the direction of the sergeants and, and head uh, eastward from that particular point. And our first objective was uh, the, the town of St. Maraglis. We had to follow that, and uh, and uh, and of course, uh, this was about six or seven o'clock in the morning. It was daylight, but from midnight on, that before that, for hours before, why the the paratroopers had been dropped in, and also the the gliders had had been sent in. They were released from the ships that were pulling them, and of course, I, I'll never forget. And Virginia's heard this story a million times, I guess. But but uh, as we were leaving the beach and heading east. Uh, on our, our way to get to St. Maraglis and, and do the, the free that city, why uh, the, the, these great big fir trees and other kinds of trees were uh, near the beach. They were, they were, they were uh, every once in a while you'd see a soldier who had been parachuted down and he landed in the tree and his parachute got caught in the tree. And of course the enemy was on the ground. So they, they shot him to death and, uh, and uh, but there they were hanging, you know, with nothing we could do for them. And then a little, excuse me, a little bit farther on, uh, we saw the uh, uh, some of these uh, 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 helicopters which had been uh, dropped in, you know, and uh, they had uh, this one I'll never f forget. It 
it landed into a great big tree, and behind it, it was, you know, it was like a small airplane, of course, but behind, the, behind these four men in the front, uh, there was a jeep that was tied down because they were going to be landing and get the jeep out and keep on going. But when they hit this big tree, why the jeep broke loose from its moorings and, uh, and crushed them uh, uh, not only against the, the glass of the uh, front of the plane, but uh, against his big tree, and they were all there, all killed. So there they were just sitting there as if they were sleeping. They, the impact killed them. They weren't really uh, terribly, terribly uh, bruised or damaged, but, uh, uh, you know, we just sort of asked a prayer as we went by and blessed them and kept on going because there's nothing we could do for them at that particular time. So we kept on going, and eventually we did get to St. Maragliese, and that's the, that's the city where you remember uh, this one paratrooper, uh, Landed uh, on the on the and his parachute got got caught on the steeple of that church in in Saint Maragliese. So from there on, after we had uh, captured that city, then we had to turn uh, north and go to Cherbourg. That was our major objective: was get up to the to the north end of the Normandy Peninsula, and that was the 12th Infantry Regiment. Uh, we were given very uh, very uh, uh, specific directions and uh, and serious objectives. And so we were. Our object was to was to capture Saint Mary. I mean, uh, uh, Sher Sherburg, the, the port city of Sherburg. And of course, when we got there, why well, it had been uh, uh, under control of uh, quite a number of uh, you know German Nazi soldiers and their officers. And of course, when we took the city, we captured them. And I'll never forget this. Uh, uh, the the chaplain of these men were captured too. And, of course, he was a prisoner, one of our prisoners. And so, naturally, I went to visit them as as the chaplain. And when we both realized that we were chaplains, and I know enough German that I could speak with him, and he gave me a uh, a little testament that, in, in German, of course, and I have it right here in my communion set, and he signed it with his name and address and that. But I never did get back to, to see him back to his hometown, you know, because... That would have been quite an effort after after the war was all over. But anyhow, he was a prisoner of the American force, and I suppose with his with his men, he came back, of course, to the United States and was in a prisoner of war camp over here with his men. But uh, uh, you might want to mention about Woodstock. Yes, and of course, uh, yeah, and as we when we landed on, on Utah Beach, you know, the landing was pretty good, but as a I'm glad Virginia reminded me of that because we were a couple of miles from where we were really supposed to be, but the Navy uh, didn't drop us off exactly where we were supposed to be landed. Well, maybe that was a good thing because uh, as we, we were safe, you know, and as I said, uh, our, our landing craft landed and I didn't even get my feet wet when I, I get a, got on the beach there. But uh, uh, the, the, another person, that one of the ones that landed with us was uh, uh, General Teddy Roosevelt, Jr., and uh, Eisenhower, and he, he of course, was uh, with our outfit, and he, he told our commanding officer, who was a, a two-star general, that he wanted to land with us, and with the landing troops, and he was, he was with our 12th Infantry Regiment, and not too far from where I actually landed. So anyhow, uh, they said, no, we don't want you to land there. We, we don't want you to, be, to lose a, a, a one-star general just in the invading forces like that. So he said, no, he said, you can court-martial me if you want to, but I'm going to be there. So he was, 
and he had, he was using a cane. No wonder they didn't want him to land there because uh, of his condition. But he was there, and uh, so he uh, he followed us uh, uh, to St. Maragliese, and and then uh, on the way to Cherbourg, why he had a heart attack, and he didn't die because of a combat wound, but he died because of his of his heart attack, and whether that was all partly due to being there, but at least he got his wishes. He was part of the invading troops, and I was—I did not have part of his memorial service, but uh, I attended his memorial service there uh, near Cherbourg, uh, right out there. And and uh, but uh, I uh, was privileged to be able to be a part of his memorial service there, actually on the front lines. Okay, so uh, after the Fourth Infantry captured uh, Cherbourg. Uh, what happened after that? Well, then, uh, after we captured Cherbourg, why then uh, our next uh, orders were to go down to, to St. Lowe. And we've heard about the St. Lowe breakthrough. And, of course, uh, it was uh, quite a distance from Cherbourg. Oh, maybe 40 miles, but it seemed like a long ways at that time. Could have been 70 miles, but uh, there was a, a lot of fighting there. But it wasn't uh, as bad as it as it had been before we got there. Other forces had uh, had freed the city from the Nazis, and so when we when we got the order that we were supposed to uh, uh, leave uh, Saint Lo and 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 travel uh, day and night to the city of Paris, why then of course uh, uh, that's what we had to do, and uh, and. Uh, it was, uh, you know, the St. Lowe breakthrough was really something that uh, I can still feel it, really. <laughs> there are uh, at least a 1,000 or 2,000 airplanes, you know, f came over from, from England and other parts of France fl flying over our heads. Of course, most of them were leaving England, of course, but they were fighters and bombers, and they were flying over our heads at St. Lowe as we were marching east. And, uh, uh, of course, I always had... Uh, uh, you know, a jeep, and and my driver was driving the jeep. We had a trailer behind us, all my religious equipment. But uh, when we were going uh, without a whole lot of fighting uh, from from Saint Lo to Paris, why uh, we uh, we spent a lot of time in the jeep day and night to get there with very little to eat and uh, and very little sleeping. But uh, and the reason we were going into Paris is because uh, initially Eisenhower didn't think that we should worry about Paris because uh, he said it has no military value at that particular time. There were a lot of Nazis there, but uh, anyhow, uh, uh, his, uh, his uh, associates finally uh, persuaded him that we should go into Paris and be a part of the, the freeing of Paris from the Nazis. It was going to be something that would be historical, you know. The public would, uh, would uh, appreciate the fact the rest of this of the Allied world, if the the Americans were Americans were part of the freeing of Paris, so the uh, the uh, the the British had uh, come in and already, but uh, Eisenhower was persuaded that we should come in too, and take part in the freeing of the city of Paris, and so uh, uh, and the free French were coming in also, because they wanted they were being a part of that and. Uh, the French uh, generals naturally wanted to be a part of the freeing of Paris, 
So they came in from the, the east and the south, and we came in from the, from the west. And, uh, and uh, we actually came in from the west and then uh, went along the south edge of the city. And, uh, and when we came into the city itself from the countryside, why, uh, I can just, of course, we all had seen pictures of Notre Dame Cathedral, and there, there was this beautiful cathedral. And, of course, from there on we had to uh, go down the, the Champs-Élysées west to the Arc of Triumph and uh, meet with other uh, military forces, the, the British and the Free French. And uh, so uh, it was uh, quite an experience because, uh, you know, the civilians had come out by the hundreds of thousands and were lined up on the Champs-Élysées to, to greet us. And as we were going down, of course, I had my jeep and trailer. And at that time, it was a practice that uh, the uh, the chaplains would be given uh, cartons of cigarettes from the red by the Red Cross, and then we would uh, give them out little by little to the soldiers. And so this was our that's how the the American soldiers got their cigarettes. They were provided by the army through the chaplain to the soldiers. And so uh, as we were going along the Champs Elysees, why? I decided, well, I'm going to uh, uh, treat these, these civilians to some good old American cigarettes because they were people over there were just hungry for American cigarettes. They were worth more than gold, actually. So uh, I started passing them out one at a time, and most of the people along the streets, are, I guess a higher percentage were, were women, a lot of young women. And boy, did they go for those cigarettes. And I made the mistake of, uh, of uh, reaching down and, and getting a, a whole pack of cigarettes and, and, and started to pass them out. And, and boy, they just dived at that pack of cigarettes like a bunch of chickens, you know, after chicken <laughs> feed. And, uh, and they really tore the cigarettes all to pieces. So uh, from then on, I was very careful how I passed off these cigarettes. So then, and we uh, eventually we got to the Arc of Triumph and, and went around it and came back. And, and that, that night, why I spent the night in a hotel in Paris with some other officers so we were billeted that night in a hotel in Paris, and uh, like I said, at that time we were not too far from the from the uh, Notre Dame Cathedral. And I thought, well, it would be historical to have a worship service in the cathedral, but I was informed that I could not do that as a Protestant chaplain. I could not go into the Catholic Church, Catholic Cathedral, and the Catholic chaplain could not go into Protestant churches. That was just the policy at that time, you know. So I had my services uh, out in, uh, in the, uh, the open area somewhere. And I did attend that service in the, the Notre Dame Cathedral, which was held by our Catholic chaplain. It's interesting. His name was Chaplain uh, Freeze, wasn't it? The other Protestant chaplain's name was Kuhn. <laughs> so it was Knapp and Freeze and Kuhn, a lot of short names. But, uh, so I did attend a service there. Uh, it was a Catholic service for our Catholic men of our Fourth Infantry Division. Tell them what else you did in Paris. Tell them what else you did in Paris. Uh, Another person. You'll have to remind me. On the Eiffel Tower? Oh! <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, we didn't stay in Paris very long, but, of course, I did have my, after after the first night in uh, in this hotel in Paris, and being that I was not able to to have a service in the, Notre Dame Cathedral, I guess I said, decided to do the next best thing. We had already been through the Arc of Triumph on the, the, the west end of the city, so I, I got with my assistant who had 
my jeep, and so we took a, another sergeant, or, and we uh, drove to the Eiffel Tower. And of course, when the Nazis left the Eiffel Tower, they knocked out the electrical uh, uh, motors, and there was no electricity in the Eiffel Tower. And it was about uh, what was it, a thousand or four thousand steps? Uh, and we had to climb up to the Eiffel Tower. And I, I guess I might have been the first American up there because I had the free time to do it. And as an officer, why I was sort of on my own. So my assistant and I and a few others uh, walked up to the top of the Eiffel Tower. And it took a whole hour because we had to walk up step by step by step. There's over a thousand steps, you know. And when we were up there looking around at that beautiful city, why uh, I realized there was some fighting still going on. On the, uh, on the streets of the parish, and the bullets were flying around my head up there. And I thought, boy, if Virginia gets word that I was killed on the top of the Eiffel Tower, she won't appreciate that at all. But luckily, was not hit. But then uh, later on, we did have the privilege, years later, uh, she and I went to, went to France, and we, we traveled around Europe. Where to see. <laughs> but anyhow, at that time, of course, we just took the elevator. But it, it's it's quite a beautiful sight, but but uh, the bullets were really flying around our head because uh, there was still some fighting on the streets below, and as they these uh, they would shoot at either others from the street up to a hotel window or something and miss the hotel, they the bullets would keep on coming up to where we were. So after uh, you were in Paris, where did you head off to after that? Well, from then, of course, like I I was about to say before. Uh, Continuing on, that uh, uh, we didn't spend much time in Paris. Naturally, after the city was freed, and our our job was uh, as a fighting infantry unit to keep on going, and we did headed we headed out uh, uh, east from Paris and uh, across Belgium, and uh, we got to uh, uh, in the, the Hurricane Forest, and you you know how terrible that was. Well, our unit was. Uh, involved in the hurricane forest for days and days and of course it was a, the tall fir trees and other kinds of trees and the the enemy was firing their artillery and it would uh, hit into these trees and the shrapnel would be flying down all around us and uh, like I've often said the, the, the it was in in the fall you know uh, September and October uh, heading into November and terrible fall weather raining and uh, and thundering and and lightning and I often said that uh, the the living conditions were so bad that a human being shouldn't have to put up with that alone without that the fact that there was a, a war going on at the same time and so uh, but I, I remember when we left that area our service company had to go and pick up all the the blankets that had been used by these guys that were like us in the in the foxholes and uh, so I know they picked up 20 blankets in the bottom of one foxhole because as the blankets got kept getting wet they kept asking for more blankets and and then they they tried to keep uh, dry and as warm as possible but uh, uh, the one thing that of course in the hurricane forest with the fighting conditions and the and the weather conditions so terrible why we were living on K rations and uh, that got pretty tiresome but uh, but of course I was as I said before, I'm a chow hound, and I, uh, I did my best in, uh, in uh, eating every bit I could of the of the K rations. And and one time there was a light, there was a, a lull in the fighting, and I looked 
over and there was our, our kitchen truck. Our regimental kitchen truck had been able to come up with hot food. And they, they spread the big pans of food on the, on the, for a little bit of open area in this, in this forested area. And it was very enjoyable to have a, a good warm GI chow. And uh, the, the dessert that time was peach halves, canned peaches, you know. Oh, I just love that. I still do. And so uh, I thought, I'm going to have some more of those. And so there was a, there was a GI, you know, behind each uh, food container. And so when I put my, my mess kit down to this big container of peaches, by the soldier behind it, he said, sorry, chaplain, no more seconds. And I felt sort of bad, but I was going through for the third time. <laughs> Nobody had seen me or, or realized. Maybe this was a different guy behind it, but anyhow, I, I, I didn't say anything. I just realized that I had already had my seconds, and I didn't get thirds. But uh, it's, it was such wonderful food after we had been eating in the cave rush in the, in the Hurtgen Forest under those terrible weather conditions. And so, of course, from then on, after we were... What was that? He got the letters. Oh, yes, yes, of course. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, like, uh, if I don't have things written down, Virginia has to remind me, but uh, uh, like I said, when I went overseas, why, our, our little son was a year old. And and when we, I left uh, to go overseas here, to, I mean, to, to really go back over to England across the ocean, why, Virginia was expecting our second child. And so... Uh, I was just wondering, will it be a boy or a girl? And I just read that letter this morning here about that. I was writing to her. I said, uh, I have a feeling it's going to be a girl because we have one boy. But anyhow, uh, when, uh, when the, the second child was born, it was on the 16th of July, wasn't it? Yeah. The, we have five kids, by the way. They're all born, in the, including my own birthday, in, the, in, the, in 16 days in July, we have... Uh, six birthdays, all five children. Some of them only two days apart. I don't know how she did that, but uh, anyhow, that's true. And anyhow, uh, I was wondering about the uh, when our second one was going to be born, and so uh, somewhere there in uh, in just before the Hurricane Forest, I think it yeah, it was in the foxholes in France. Why on that one day, two weeks after she was born, well, it was like. A, it was the 28th, or I think the 29th, actually, of July, where I got three communications. Virginia's letter telling me that, that the little girl had been born, uh, the, the telegram that she had also sent, and the cablegram that came from the, the Red Cross that she had told them to inform me to. All three came to the same to the Fox on the same day. So I really found out that, that I was father again. So. And was it a boy or a girl? That Joni. Joni. She was just here. Yeah, just put her on a plane to go back. She lives in uh, Olympia, Washington. Yeah. And so she. Yeah. And uh, so she went back yesterday. Yeah. And we take to see her go back. <laughs> so my wife, uh, she we don't mind being our age, you know. I'm 91. She's 88. But uh, she says when she realizes that our oldest child is 65. Old enough to retire and be on Social Security, you know, my, <laughs> makes us feel a little bit older in that respect. But uh, I did hear about Joni's birth the two weeks after it, it occurred. And so uh, 
sometime there about that same time why uh, uh, our fellow chaplains uh, uh, recommended that I be, I've been doing a pretty good job, I guess they thought, so they recommended that I be uh, uh, given the uh, captain's bars. So not too far apart, well, I found out about my second child's uh, birth and also I got became a captain, so uh, I never I never got to be a major. <laughs> when you were uh, promoted, was there any kind of a ceremony that you No, 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 just the two chaplains uh, uh, out in the field, you know, in combat conditions, just uh, had gotten word of uh, from headquarters that I had gotten this promotion. And then uh, the uh, uh, the one chaplain who had been uh, in the service for quite some time before we arrived, he had been a uh, you know in that outfit in during peacetime, so he had an extra set of cha captain's bars, and so they pinned the captain's bars on me, and just the two of them had our own little private ceremony. So naturally, I I wrote back to Virginia and told her about that naturally. So I told her about. The fact that my income would come, go up, and my our housing allowance would go up, and and uh, and food allowance would go up too. Okay. So after the hurricane forest, uh, where did you end up? Well, uh, we were so beat up, you know, terribly beat up, that they they sent us the, our higher up officers sent us to uh, Luxembourg. <coughs> Excuse me, because uh, there was not much. Uh, a fighting going on in in uh, in Luxembourg, and uh, isn't that right, Jenya? Yeah. yeah, Luxembourg. And so uh, we had always been in the First Army. Well, uh, we were there the end of November, the first part of December, and uh, it was just like heaven, you know, after living in a foxhole in uh, the Hurricane Forest oh, for for weeks like that. Why here we were in a in a nice warm uh, house in. Uh, in Luxembourg uh, with electricity most of the time. It kept going on and off, but uh, Luxembourg hadn't been beat up uh, at, up until that time yet. And uh, we almost felt like we were at home because uh, the houses looked like American houses and, and some of the people spoke English. A lot of the, American, a lot of the automobiles on the streets of Luxembourg City were American automobiles. And so everything was fine until uh, uh, on one... Uh, uh, nice day, and this happened to be the 16th of December, that uh, the Battle of the Bulge started. And on the cross, the, Ol the Elbe River, which was Germany, of course, the, the Nazis started firing on this city of, of Luxembourg. And uh, it was sort of early in the morning, and I, I was out there in the, in, the, in the area, the village courtyard, because our men were billeted all around there in all of the houses. And uh, the first shell came in, went into the window of the second floor of a house where three of our GIs had just been there getting dressed to go out and that. And they had left. If they had been there, I'm sure they all would, gotten, would have been killed. But the second or third shell that came in to this, uh, this uh, courtyard in the, the village square, like I was talking to our, uh, to our first sergeant of the battalion, and it... It struck him rather seriously in the leg, a big piece of shrapnel hit him in the leg, and it, uh, it was bleeding quite uh, profusely through his uniform. So I took off my, my, my belt and, and made a tourniquet, best as I could, uh, 
uh, above the wound to keep the blood from coming out. And he was just a, a slender young uh, fella, uh, Huey Young. He had bright red hair. And, uh, of course, then uh, he was taken away by, uh, as soon as possible by, by the medics on the stretcher and then the uh, ambulance and to, uh, to a, a field hospital not too far away and eventually to France, I mean to, uh, to England and sent back to the United States. And I just have to tell you that uh, I did not see him then for 20 years because I never had a chance to visit him uh, after he was released from the service. And then I came back home after the war was over. And uh, I, very short, shortly after the war was over, I became the, the national chaplain of the 4th Division Association, the National Association, which included men from World War I and World War II. And we had these, uh, most of the men that came at first were World War I men. And they had an, uh, a National Association meeting every, every year. You know, we met from California to New York and Florida, Texas, all over. And so uh, Virginia and I would attend uh, almost every one of them. And eventually I became elected as a, the National Association chaplain. And so we, at every uh, associated meeting, we, uh, I had uh, the, uh, the prayers at the opening of the, all the meetings and, uh, and had special services in a local church if, if possible. And, uh, and uh, it, it took me, tw well, it was 20 years before this Sergeant Huey Young came to his first association meeting. And uh, somebody told me that he was there. And uh, when, uh, when I saw, they, they told me, there's a Huey Young coming. I, I, I just couldn't believe it. But he already had his name tag on. He had, he had registered. He had been there before we got there. And it said Huey Young. But you know, like I said, he was slender. He was redheaded. Now he was a very, uh, almost overweight, wasn't he? He was a very heavy fella and his the, the little hair that he had left was white instead of red. And I, like they say, figuratively speaking, I had a, kept pinching myself that this was really that red-headed sergeant that I had that helped when he was wounded on the 16th of December in Luxembourg, uh, you know, uh, by putting the belt tourniquet around his leg. But uh, anyhow, uh, he was so glad to see uh, Virginia and I because he knew her too. And so we had to go up to his room and have have a drink of wine with him and uh, but uh, we had we saw him then at a number of reunions but now haven't seen him for a while have we oh yeah 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 anyhow he you know he is no longer living but uh, he was younger than I was but uh, anyhow uh, what a what a change to, to see that uh, his heavy fat heavy set uh, white-headed fellow was this uh, red-headed sergeant that I had helped. But anyhow, you had asked too about, uh, you know, after we're from the Hurtgen Forest, and of course that, that was a story of Luxembourg, and then of course when the Battle of the Bulge started, by then uh, Patton had been, General Patton had been uh, to the south of us with his Third Army, and uh, then we needed, uh, Eisenhower felt we needed somebody who was very much experienced uh, in that kind of combat that we were going to be entering into as we went across Germany. So, uh, Patton came up and took us over, and he took over. Uh, the Third Army became the army that was uh, uh, then uh, 
uh, uh, heading for across Germany to uh, 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 end the war, so to speak. And of course, it did end about 11 months uh, after it started, you know. I think D-Day was on the 6th of June, wasn't it, Jenny? And, and the VE Day was uh, the, the 6th of May in, in 1945. So we had a lot of, uh, we had a lot of fighting and uh, we, uh, as I said, we were the first American troops uh, to, uh, to be in contact with the enemy as they were retreating back into Germany. And uh, I, uh, I was so glad when, when we got the word that the war was over and I think Virginia reminded me I should be sure to mention what took place on, on, uh, on VE Day. We had been stationed, a couple of other chaplains and myself, with our battalion and part of the regiment in, in Nuremberg, Germany. And because we were, we were expecting that, you know, the things were sort of widening, widening or, or winding down. And so uh, we got the word on the evening of, uh, of May the 6th that actually that the Germans had surrendered and that uh, combat was over, that we would not have to be involved in combat anymore. So, uh, so we had been living in blackout conditions for so long. So that night, why the other chaplain, myself, and our assistants, we went out and first we pulled up all the shades in our house, which, which did, this was one of Hermann Goring's castles in his hometown of Nuremberg. So we were stationed there in, in that the castle. It was very, very nice, of course. So uh, we went out that night and turned on the lights on our Jeep and, uh, and flashed the flashlights up in the sky. And, uh, and uh, we did all kinds of things which we hadn't been able to do for, for a couple of years, you know. So uh, after uh, uh, combat was, was finished and uh, we were Army of Occupation uh, for, for a while, why then they eventually, why... They felt they had better things for the 4th Infantry Division to do, and our, our, we got orders to, uh, to go back to France, across France, and uh, uh, eventually uh, leave Le Havre and go back to the United States to train for the invasion of Japan, because the 4th Division was always a hot outfit, as they called it. But anyhow, uh, the last service that we two Protestant chaplains had uh, in, in France was in a great big pasture, great big open field. And the men knew it was our last service there because we were going to be heading to, to come back home. And uh, so we had 400 men at that service sitting out in the open area. And, you know, they, they put their, 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 uh, their, their uh, they'd be sitting on their, their steel helmet on the round part and get a little bit tired sitting that way. Then they'd sit upside down, they'd sit down in their steel helmet and they just sit on the ground and so on. And, uh, and the other chaplain and I had announced that this was going to be a communion service, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And, of course, it would be our last service in, in Europe, in, 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 uh, in France, before we went home. So we're going to make, have a significant service of Holy Communion. And I said to the other chaplain, when we realized there were 400 men out there, as we just roughly counted them, I said, we're going to run out of wine although we did get wine from the local people uh, as we were in France there. Naturally, the, the government wasn't able to provide us with 
with, I mean, they, they, they didn't, but we got it locally, you know, from the civilians. But I said, we're, gonna, we're not going to have enough wine. He said, don't worry, chaplain. He said, as a Presbyterian, we will use the Presbyterian in tincture method. So we had the men come up to each one of us one by one. We took the wafer and dipped it in the wine and put it in their open mouth, put it on their tongue. So we had plenty of wine that way. And so I was, I was sure glad that he had answered to my question, how are we going to have enough wine for these hundreds of men? And so, of course, after that service, then we, uh, of course, every, every chaplain had his own Jeep and trailer, and all of the other men were on trucks, and we, we then uh, uh, went across France to, to La Havre and got on the boat, uh, which was waiting for us to take us over to the, back home to the United States. And it was a USS George Washington, wasn't it? Yeah, and uh, and uh, and of course Virginia is quite a musician, but and I'm not. But uh, and they those fellows had uh, been doing a lot of uh, uh, traveling uh, in on the Pacific Ocean, but for this particular time to bring us home, they came through the Panama Canal and uh, somewhere along the line, you know, to go across the Atlantic Ocean and bring us home. Somewhere along the line, they had picked up some some new uh, records, record, musical records to play. And one they, they really liked. And, and one side was, uh, was it one meatball? Mm -hmm. what was, on one side was one meatball, on the other side was... Uh, uh, sentimental Journey. Oh, Sentimental Journey. And so uh, we heard both of them. But uh, I think we heard Sentimental Journey more than one meatball. Yeah. But uh, it, it, it really fit in to have fit in to have a sentimental journey. So these fellows, the, the crew on the ship, played that again and again and again, and the ten days that it took us to, to get across. I think that they would be interested in uh, a, a chaplain with no gun and the person to tell the story on that one. So when in, in Germany the soldiers. The German soldiers were just waiting for the Americans to come and capture them. They just oh, yes, yes. Yeah. The story on that one. Just before they, well, the war was, was ending down, and the, the, the Germans knew that uh, they were, uh, a lot of them were retreating east, of course. And we got to this uh, a little German town, and uh, uh, a lot of the uh, German soldiers had been, uh, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, surrendering to us, so to speak. They were just waiting for us to come in. But in this one little town, right now I don't think of the name of it, but uh, there they were. The German soldiers were all there. Their their rifles were stacked up in uh, in the uh, in the courtyard of the village, and uh, they were waiting to be taken prisoners because they they had seen what was that uh, and heard that we were taking pretty w good care of them, you know, uh, of our prisoners, and they would be sent back to uh, prisoner war camps and eventually maybe back even to the United States. Well, as I was there, of course, naturally, uh, uh, dressed in my chaplain's uniform and uh, this one uh, 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 civilian came up and he was, uh, uh, he heard me speaking some German and he was speaking to me and he uh he wanted me to come with him, and he, he told me that he was a soldier, even though he was dressed in civilian clothes. Well, he had gone AWOL uh, from his German army, and uh, he had 
and staying in a in a in a with a civilian in a home in this uh, uh, small German village, and so I said I felt I'm not going to go uh, with him all by myself. I don't have a, a, a you know a weapon to protect myself, so I took one of my the big sergeants with me. I said, "Will you go with me?" And we're going to go see what this fellow want, really intends to do. So we went uh, to this, uh, this civilian house in this little German village, and uh, he took us up to the second floor. And there, under the bed, was his uniform and his rifle and his canteen and all of his other military equipment. So he had gone AWL, and these civilians had taken him in and given him civilian clothes to wear so he would be uh, considered as a civilian in the town. But he figured he better better surrender and go with the rest of his fellow soldiers and uh, see what would happen. So uh, so uh, I still have uh, his camera and uh, and what do I else do I have? The gun. Oh, yeah, the gun. <laughs> I, I still have the gun. And, of course, uh, another gun I have. <laughs> no, never fired it, but uh, still have it because it's a real souvenir, you know. And so I, I got his gun and his camera, and I still have the camera. And uh, but anyhow, uh, it. Uh, yeah, we had the film developed, and we thought we would tell maybe something that, that he from his family or something. We thought well, then it's a picture of the family. We thought we'd put it, see if we can find the family. After after the war was over, and and there was no, it was just a uh, uh, field that he took pictures of, and what they were, have no idea what they were. We couldn't find anything. We tried to find, thought maybe we could find the person and really find him maybe sometime. We never could. But uh, it was. Uh... But I always teased him. I said they just surrender because when they see you, they just surrender. <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering, is your lady dressed this I thought maybe that. You might have some other questions? Or? Yes, um, you had mentioned uh, attending the service at Notre Dame the Cathedral. Now, what was that like? Well, it's it's, it's tremendous. And, uh, of course, I, since NY Virginia and I have been there, you know, but it's, it's a very, very beautiful and... Uh, Tremendous or humongous, whichever word is the best to describe it. But uh, it's uh, you know it's very tall, very long, and uh, it's a long as you come in way to look down the central aisle all the way to the uh, to the uh, to the to the nave, and where the altar is, and the tremendous nave with uh, I, I presume they could have dozens of people in their choir. But I never did attend this you know a civilian service there. I just attended this one that was conducted by our Catholic chaplain uh, with his Catholic men. And so uh, we were welcome to attend, but, uh, you know, as, as I said before, I couldn't have a service of my own. Okay. Can you tell us a little bit uh, about the circumstances around your getting the Purple Heart? Well, yeah, um, yeah I was wounded in the leg. It was, uh, no, fortunately, not, uh, I didn't need to be hospitalized. But it was uh, enemy shrapnel that uh, later on, you know, in Luxembourg, by that enemy shrapnel, uh, very seriously injured the sergeant, and his leg was bleeding badly, and and I just uh, put my my belt on around as a tourniquet. But uh, 
my wound wasn't uh, wasn't serious. It had to be bandaged, but uh, you know whether it's uh, <laughs> whether you lose a leg or just get a, a small wound, why you get a purple heart. And so it wasn't that it was. Uh, I mean, I must admit it. And I'm glad it wasn't a very serious wound because it could have been bad enough, like uh, like that. Uh, 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 Sergeant, eventually, you know, uh, uh, I mean, like the other chaplain, just just one bullet in his heart and he was gone. But I, I was fortunate, and uh, nothing you can do but just uh, uh, try to take care of yourself and. Uh, can you tell us uh, about your bronze star? How did you get that? Oh, well, yeah, you have to be recommended by uh, by fellow officers, of course. And uh, they gave me that because of the fact that, uh, you know, at first I, I was right up there with the men where they were, being, were doing the fighting and the wounding and being wounded, and uh, they just felt that that was a... Uh, 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 brave enough and courageous enough uh, endeavors that uh, I had earned uh, the Bronze Star. So that was, uh, like I said, it's not quite as uh, uh, high an award as a Silver Star, but uh, but next to it, it's it's in recognition of uh, what you have done under combat and uh, to uh, to exhibit some bravery and and help others. Okay. So you mentioned uh, your unit was sent back to the U.S. to prepare for invading in Japan. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, yeah, and we were, uh, uh, after we got back from our training in Florida for this amphibious invasion, right, we had uh, some time, you know, because I said to come back at Thanksgiving time and visit friends and relatives in this St. Louis and Chicago area. <coughs> and then the uh, uh, we, we then, after a month of recuperation leave, why Virginia and I and the two children were driving in, in, in my brother's car, so to speak, uh, to, uh, to the East Coast, where we are going to be having our amphibious training. And on the way, we heard over the radio, luckily we, we had a, a radio that got some pretty good news at that time. It was good news for us, because we heard that the... Uh, the, uh, the ad atomic bomb had been dropped, which was bad that we had to use such an, an instrument, but it, it was uh, a quick way to end the war. So then uh, uh, we realized that uh, the war was over, and probably we wouldn't have to go to Japan, but we did have to go to our camp and, uh, and, and, and sign in, of course, and, uh, and uh, we... Uh, Got a little place to live, and then uh, uh, because of the fact that uh, uh, the war was over, and we were going to be uh, continuing as a as a nation uh, occupying Europe for who knows how long. Why then they told me that the, the chief of chaplain's office told me after we had been there for a while on the East Coast. That uh, we either had, to, I either had to uh, get out of the chaplaincy right away, or stay in, with the possibility of going to Germany with the Army of Occupation, and uh, and of course my 
my uh, my own unit was not going to be going over, uh, being that they had been uh, scheduled initially to go to Japan, when we didn't have to go there, well, then we were, uh, well, how would you call it? The, the unit was disbanded and everybody was sent to other units or, uh, or back home. If they had put in enough time that they were, uh, and the war was over, that uh, they would be being sent home. But as a chaplain, yet I had one or two things to do. Get out immediately, become a civilian, and or, or if I want to stay in, I continue being a captain, but I would be over in the uh, who knows how long with, with a strange outfit in the uh, Army of Occupation. And I, I felt I certainly didn't want to do that because uh, probably wouldn't be able to take uh, Virginia and the children with me. And uh, so anyhow, I decided to uh, be relieved of my uh, active duty. And we came home and uh, Virginia had been living in a, in a rented uh, house there in a suburb on the west side of, of St. Louis. And so naturally coming back as a civilian, why uh, the thing to do is to, to, be, to be, become a pastor again. I, that's at least what I wanted to decide to do. You know, I, I probably could have become a, a, a chaplain in a, in a hospital, something like that. But if I had stayed in the chaplaincy, you know, they said I would have gone over to Europe with Army of Occupation. So then we, we came home, and, uh, of course, uh, we were living in the, in the same area where her, her parents lived, and which was not too far from the from my seminary in Webster Groves, Missouri. And that's why I got to know her and to meet her because I was doing uh, my, my field work as a seminary student in her church, just in the same community where the seminary was. So uh, I uh, let the, the authorities know that I was back and that I was willing to go back into the civilian pastorate. And a church opened up in South St. Louis and uh, in plain words, we checked it out and I had a trial sermon and was accepted. And so I was actually uh, in the service uh, until about the end of December. I wasn't on active duty, but I was considered to be uh, on inactive duty, but still in the service. And uh, so uh, the first few services, uh, if I remember right, I, I think I wore my uniform, didn't I? Yeah. In, the, in the first few services I had in, in December at that church in South St. Louis, that was Nazareth Church. And uh, and so after being uh, accepted and installed, why we stayed there for uh, for three years, and I guess for some silly reason I decided I want to come back into the Chicago general Chicago area where I had gone to college and uh, well, and grown up. Your parents were still living at that time. Yeah, my parents were both living, and my. I, my brother by that time was out of the service, and I had all my other relatives. I had I came from a big family, especially on my mother's side, and so we had we had many many cousins, and uh, so uh, uh, after serving the church a couple of years in St. Louis, and I wanted to come back up here, and when you didn't, you didn't say no, <laughs> so we came back up and uh, we uh, served a church in on in uh, I mean after three years in St. Louis. We were four years in Blue Island on the south side in that suburb. And then uh, I, I decided I wanted to make use of my, my GI Bill, 
which would give me uh, educational provision privileges. And so I was, I had, uh, I had, uh, my mileage was covered and also the tuition was covered. So I went to the uh, uh, theological school at the University of Chicago and uh, I was going to work for my PhD and uh, I was still doing that and driving about 40 miles three times a week from uh, Dyer, Indiana up to the University of Chicago. And then after our, uh, when I, we came back home, why we, like I said, we had had the two children and then uh, our, uh, our, we had uh, two more. And then the, our, when, after our fifth child was born in uh, Dyer, Indiana, I said, the heck with a PhD degree. I'm just going to quit that and be a father and a pastor. And so that's what I've tried to be uh, since uh, that time when I uh, quit working on my, my PhD. And uh, so we uh, stayed out there in Dyer, Indiana and moved up to uh, uh, Peace Church in Bellwood, a western suburb here. Uh, in 1965 and stayed there for 16 years and retired in 1981. And I didn't, never really did retire <laughs> because, uh, well, until rather recently, but I was, uh, when they found out I had retired in, uh, in 1981 by the chaplain at Plymouth Place Retirement Home, in Lagrange Park, had uh, just uh, had a had a heart attack and, and died completely unexpectedly, and so when the authorities at the house at the at the retirement home found out I had retired, why they called me in and asked me if I would when it would be the the chaplain. So I was there for 19 years until 1981. <laughs> <laughs> and so, but I'm still serving a church. I'm still active. I'm serving a church in Melrose Park. Right here. And, right you know, door. right next door. <laughs> so I've been there for uh, uh, quite some time. I don't know exactly how long. Well, you were there for a while, and then they got another minister. So that was fine. So you retired again. Yeah. And then, and then that fellow, he was only there for four years. And then when he left, they called him back again. So then he I've been there for again. quite some time. 12, 15 years or something like yeah, that, I guess. Yeah, quite, quite a few years yeah. now. Again. <laughs> but we're living at uh, in a cottage at uh, at Lagrange, I mean in Lagrange Park at the uh, Plymouth Place Retirement Home. So we do have a cottage, and we're not living in the main building. And so in the cottage, you uh, you're completely self-sufficient. You pay a monthly rent, and uh, they do the windows and the and the and the. And the lawn and raking the leaves and, uh, and the snow. <laughs> yeah, anything that goes wrong, like this morning, uh, just before we left, uh, uh, a man came in. Uh, he was uh, and replaced uh, one of the burners in our gas stove, so that anything that goes wrong, uh, that's taken care of. But we do have uh, a nice hefty sum to pay every month for the privilege of uh, of living there. It's like rent. Up there, and they sent two nurses down right away. You know, when George became ill that one time, I called up there, and they 
and the usually if it's at night, by the security comes along with with the nurse, you know. So and you're all taken care of. So and there is a health care there, so you can be moved right into there or take an ambulance like our neighbors. Uh, he called and he he's in the hospital and I called him down to the hospital to see how he was doing. And uh, the, you know the ambulance comes, takes him right away. So you have complete care, which is. Is really very good, and it's kind of interesting because so many people, like the one gal uh, that we go and pick her up now every Sunday to church, and and so, but now she's she had her 90th birthday, and she uh, she lives by herself. She rents out a garage to a person, uh, a young fellow. I don't know what he does, where he gets his money or anything, but he's. Uh, um, she's known him since he was only four years old, but he lives in her garage, you know, and has, and he must have a microwave, and he must have some kind of stove in there to keep warm in this kind of weather and all that, you know, and, and so forth. But a couple of Sundays ago, she forgot to take her keys, so she couldn't get back in the house when she got back home when we took her after church. And she said, well, maybe he's out there, you know, so he has a phone. So sure enough, he was. Otherwise, it was one young, young fellow in the church. He said, well, I, she said, well, sometimes I leave the one window partly open. And so he was going to go along also, and he went along to be sure that she got back in the house again. But otherwise, otherwise she's all by herself. She has one son, and he lives in Elk Grove Village. But that's too far away. And I said to her, how do you get groceries? You know, you have no car. There's no public transportation there. And, but then she did say that her son now took her to one of the retirement homes. And I said, well, keep looking, you know, and I told her I would be glad to take her around. But she wants to stay in that area, you know, another retirement home. And uh, so I, I don't know, like the one that we have that we're in, it's a good thing we went in as a, in the cottages because we couldn't afford now what, what they're charging for the new people coming in. It's, they've raised the rate way up, and uh, so I happen to be one of the welcomers on the new people when they come in, and I bake uh, banana bread, and then I take a machine showing all the different things in that whole area, how they can get in touch with, and all the restaurants that are listed and all the other things. We have sheets, to, so I go in and introduce myself and, and uh, talk to them, and like I called this one gal the other day, and I said, well, uh, see, three, time, three times in the month, one, one week they have wine and cheese, and another one they have uh, uh, just all kinds of liquor and soft drinks and peanuts and uh, uh, pretzels and all kinds of other stuff. And uh, the other one is they have uh, root beer floats, you know, another. And so... And all of that's free for all the whole, everybody who lives there, you know. And uh, so I called this one gal who had just come in. I said, now, this afternoon they have root beer floats. They have the one exercise at, uh, at 2 o'clock, but at 3 o'clock when the exercise is over, they have root beer floats. And I said, well, just, she said, and the one fellow, he was so crazy, he said, oh, I don't have any money with me. I said, you don't need any money. Just come on down. And, and, and 
get a root beer phone if you need. Like sometimes I go back for more ice cream or more root beer. <laughs> you know, and uh, so this way you get to meet all, all the other people, you know. Nice. And so it, it's kind of nice that way. So, but as I told him, it's only one for each, each time, you know. But uh, some of these people, they just think that that, that all, their own house is so much, is so important to them but they don't seem to realize that if you if you become ill or something like that, then what are you going to do? And some of these think that they can just stay there. They must think they're going to live to be 200 because <laughs> I always think, well, it's so much better if you just go and do something like that. And uh, well, I was 80 when we went in, and, we, and George was quite sick at that time, and we didn't really think he was going to live. And so he wanted me to be sure to be there and to be taken care of. He knew I'd be well taken care of then. So, so we went in. And I, I wanted to go in when he was 80, but he, no, no, that house was still so important. <laughs> and now it's the other way around, you know. <laughs> but you'll have to come down and, and see the, the new building. It's un sure. unbelievable. Yeah. Do you have some more? Actually, um, can you take a couple of minutes and describe your uh, communion kit to us? How about this old Yeah, this is uh, <laughs> me in my uh, combat uniform, you know. That was taken in Paris. Like I said, we have... Uh, the cross on the, the helmet and the cross on the there and uh, the captain's bars on the on the shoulders and, and this is uh, the chaplain's stole. This of course is like I said I, I had to buy the uniform but of course the, the chaplain's stole was provided I think wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> but anyhow uh, naturally uh, this uniform was. Uh, was uh, packed up in the field locker, except uh, when uh, the war was was over with. It's but interesting. Some of the funeral homes around in this area that know him, uh, if they have someone who's a veteran and who doesn't have a pastor, they'll call, and he still goes and has the funeral service. For some of these. Yeah. Anyhow, we. Uh, this was the. The chaplain's flag that uh, that flew from uh, the front fender of our jeep, and so that uh, you know the uh, every military, every I mean a medical officer had a, a red and white flag, of course. But uh, this was a, every chaplain, and this one you can see is pretty well worn. But it would be flying from the uh, the right front fender of our of our jeep. So wherever we went, the they knew that the chaplain was coming. Of course, if the weather was, the conditions were so terrible, why we just wouldn't uh, have it out there. But when we would just be going slowly and uh, from one area to another, well, we always had our our chaplain's flag flying. And uh, this was the hymn book that was provided by the uh, the government for us, of course. And uh, we had a, a a pretty good sized case, about four times as big as this, uh, for uh, 
carrying all of our hymn book. I think we had about a hundred of them. And uh, then the, this was a hymn book that, uh, no, not the, the, uh, uh, the uh, New Testament that was given to me by uh, uh, this man whose uh, wife had given it to him in December the 17th, 1943. So he wanted me to have, but see, this was uh, uh, bulletproof. So you, you wore it over your heart, in the pocket over your heart, uh, so that uh, it would protect you. And uh, I was telling you about the fact that this, uh, this German uh, chaplain was a prisoner in Cherbourg. And he gave me this little uh, a German hymn book. And uh, like uh, he, uh, he wrote the date, you know, and it was uh, the, the, the 30th day of June, 1944. And uh, he was, uh, I was a first lieutenant at that time, but uh, he was a chaplain of the Nazi Marines. And, and like I said, he was a prisoner when we came in, uh, uh, captured him in Sherberg. And, uh, and of course, that is, uh, like I said, see page 18, but that is, uh, in German, a mighty fortress is our God. Of course, I know enough German that I can understand that that's what it, Ein Festeburg ist unser Gott. Ein Gute, Wer und Waffen, and so on. But that was his uh, his book, and this was a, the uh, the New Testament that I took with me and carried with me all the time. And uh, I'll just see how show you how this was set up. Uh, this is where we came in, had the communion wafers, of course, uh, and uh, we always had a little bottle full of wine, and. Uh, Of course, I, with the, uh, uh, when I, most of the time out in the field, this would be sitting on my Jeep, you know, the, the hood of the Jeep was completely flat and square in the front, so I would put this, uh, oh, I, I see now why I'm getting mixed up here trying to do it. I knew something wasn't right, but we put the, the flag just like this, just hold it there for a moment, and uh, and this would be, uh, and I, I put a hymn book on, on the end of each one to hold it like that. But then this would be the way, if this was my Jeep, you know, that uh, my assistant would be sitting on the, on the bumper of the Jeep here or on a the, on the five-gallon gas can, which we would take off the back of the Jeep, and he would be sitting on that and uh, pumping the field organ. He had a pumpet, you know, but, uh, and he was a pretty good singer. So we would pass out the hymn books, and he would lead in the singing and play the organ at the same time, because I'm no singer. Virginia is a musician in our family. But anyhow, this is what we would, and these Kellen, Kellen uh, candles are pretty old. You can see the way they look. But uh, I, I tried to keep them shined up nicely, but this is the way I would put it up uh, in the, uh, in, on my Jeep. And if we were uh, in a, sometimes we'd be in the basement of a house or in the living room of a house, I would set it up uh, the same way on a, on the sink or the kitchen counter or whatever it might be. And of course, if we, we had a service in a, in a civilian church uh, and I was still gonna have communion, I would set this up because then I had, you know, I had my, my wafers in here and the, the, the wine. But that, that's, and this was provided by the government. We didn't have to buy that. Like I said, uh, they gave us $200 for our uniform and everything else, but this was provided by the, uh, the government.
I think the I think the the soul was too. I'm not absolutely sure about that, but uh, like I said, this is the way it looked when I pulled up to uh, out in the field where our fellows were going to assemble to have a worship service. It might be Sunday morning, it might be Saturday night, it might be uh, Tuesday afternoon, whenever they could get together. And if I knew that the, the fighting was uh, was sort of at a standstill for a while, why we'd send word down through the by the commanding officer through the, the company runners, pass the word around all the fellows that uh, the chaplain was going to be having a service at a certain place at a certain time, and it, it didn't necessarily have to be on Sunday morning, but it could be any time during the day. And uh, so that's. I try to keep it shined up. I guess it doesn't look too bad. No. no. Looks new. Yeah. <laughs> so with with my uh, combat uniform on like that, well, you know, with the helmet off, then I would be standing alongside the jeep, and my assistant would be sitting there on the other side uh, on the five-gallon gas can, uh, pumping the organ. You know. So. We saw him. Oh, I guess it's at least five, more than five, almost ten years ago. We met him in Jacksonville, Florida, and saw him coming all the way over on the other side. Okay. Exactly. <laughs> I wouldn't have missed him at all. <laughs> yeah, he has, he has passed away since then. So I was glad that we got to see him one more time. Yeah, he was a big uh, Southern Baptist. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's uh, that's it. Okay. Well, thank you very much for sharing your memories with us. We really appreciate you doing this. Thank you. And I have, like uh, you had said, bring some pictures, you know. But uh, I, I don't have. Uh, I mean, I just brought the actual stuff here. So, if you. Uh,